0: I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen
1: Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Day, the podcast where we're all in the same position as the rest of the country and the world. We're just sitting inside thinking about stuff and watching movies because there is nothing else to do. I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello, how are you doing this this fine quarantined day?
0: I put my hair in a ponytail last night just to see if I could, and I could, and I was like, oh, crap.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I'm getting to the point where I'm going to look like Cousin It before long, So my hair just keeps on getting longer and longer and curlier and curlier. It's yep. just like, there's no, it's just, my roommate said I looked like a Muppet this morning. I was like, fuck you,
0: <laughs> fuck you.
1: I mean, I'm like. I'm so glad I don't is... have a roommate. <laughs> <laughs> we do have an electric razor. I could shave my head. Like, that is something I could do.
0: <laughs> last weekend, I was on... We've been doing Hollywood Critics Association that I'm part of. We've been doing these... Um, well, I say we, but, like, our organization has been doing a couple times a week, like, live streams. And talking about different films, different topics and things. And I participated last weekend... And one of the guys that was on it, he had just shaved his head. And I was like, if I had clippers, I would probably do it. <laughs> and they, He's like, I will bring you some. Where do you live?
1: <laughs> Now's the time. I mean, I'm telling you, like, I'm there is there is a good chance that I'm going to give myself a quarantine haircut. Like, yeah. just because. <laughs> mm hmm just because and then when I when I go when I go to the hairdresser for the first time and whenever that happens to be she's gonna be like oh my god what did you do
0: (laughs) what have you done
1: (laughs) just like what am I supposed to do that's just like look it's been a difficult few months and (laughs) I mean we made all of the sourdough things already so I just this was the next step really
0: I got a tech A text message yesterday from my esthetician that does my waxing and she was like i'm so sorry we have to cancel all the appointments for may too and i was like yeah i know that but oh it sucks
1: (laughs) my (laughs) eyebrows
0: are out of control
1: (laughs) (laughs) we just we all need to embrace it we just need to embrace the fact that you know and we're all that's the other thing we're all gonna be like this because everybody is doing the same thing so we're all gonna leave the house and like there, I will be like, "Wow!" We're just like, "This is what happens when humanity, you know, goes feral." Or whatever.
0: oh yeah, when when this is over and we all start going back in public, I'm gonna have harsh judgment of anybody who does already have perfect hair and eyebrows because clearly, yeah. they were not doing what they were supposed to be doing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just like you—you you shouldn't have been doing that. Like mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. exactly,
1: mm-hmm. Yes. jerks. <laughs> uh well so we decided today and for actually the next couple of weeks that we wanted to cover some some things that we sort of talk about a lot uh on this podcast but we've never really talked about in a great deal of depth or specificity so we wanted to talk um for the next couple of weeks about various forms of film criticism film theory uh, what it means, what it is, sort of some of the common tenets of it and kind of how it's changed over the course of, um, of the past few years and, and, you know, how we understand it and how we approach films, uh, not just as viewers but as critics and as theorists. And this is something that I love because I, I, I'm basically an, I'm an academic film critic. I was trained in academia. I wasn't really trained to be a journalist or anything like that um but i've always been interested in the way that not just in the way that uh whether or not i like a film or and why but also like what a film actually does in terms of um in terms of history in terms of the way it represents culture in terms of sociology you know i made a big part of this came out of the uh a major twitter kerfuffle that occurred (laughs) Uh, this week, because I made a catastrophic error, which I should have known better, but I didn't, because uh, I just can't keep my mouth shut, and <laughs> I, I retweeted, I happened to retweet a director's comment, and I made a comment, and part of my comment was that, um, it was that all art is political. And this is true. This is not like, this isn't something that I came up with. This is something that has been discussed numerous times, but it's true. All art is political. And what that means is that all art has something to say about the culture that it's produced in, um, the, the sociology that it is involved with, the perspective that it takes, the uh, political undercurrents of it. So even if this, you know, you, you're talking about a, a work that is primarily intended for entertainment. So big budget film that you're really all you want to do is to create something that entertains people, right? You're not really thinking necessarily as an artist about this is this has a a major political underpinning or something like that. But it does because it's being produced in a particular culture, it's being produced at a particular time, and it's being produced from a particular perspective. Whether it's a, a, a white man's perspective, whether it is a black woman's perspective, Um, And a whole bunch of different artists are contributing to it at the same time. You've got writers, you've got directors, you've got producers, you have actors. um, You have all the people who are working behind the set, all the people that are shaping the way that this film is eventually seen. And so it is a political act. Anytime you watch a film, anytime you make a film, uh, anytime you talk about a film, you're you're talking about something that is is political and cultural. This caused a lot of anger, (laughs) me just saying this uh not surprisingly from particular quadrant of uh of male fans essentially mostly uh and and so but it got kind of this dialogue going and um and this whole thing that just like no it's not it isn't political it can't be political you know why do you have to make everything about politics just like well it is everything is about politics you know if I'm making if I'm talking about a film from a feminist perspective that's that's political and if you're talking about a film from a, a white male perspective, because that's what you are, then that is also political. Your, your perspective is not an objective one and mine is a subjective one. They're all subjective. Um, it's all about opinion and it's all about the way that you approach something. And that's okay. That's good. Uh, but the point is we actually have to have a dialogue about it rather than simply saying like, no, 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 my, my perspective is the right one. It's objective. And yours, you're trying to politicize this. Just like, no we're both politicizing it at some level so that is all to say that we wanted to spend a little bit time talking about film theory talking about film criticism uh discussing some of the issues that we run into and uh and maybe even why why we like actually thinking about film in more of an in-depth way so karen i've said a lot about film theory (laughs) and i like film theory i'm into it I don't know how into it you are. Like, is this something that you're really like, yes, this is like, this is really uh, what I am interested in talking about? Or do do you have a slightly different perspective on this approach, this kind of approach to film?
0: I have a slightly different perspective. However, I do not have the film Twitter perspective, which is just like, I like what I like and none of it means anything except for what it means to me. I don't feel that way Mm. either. I'm somewhere... I lean more toward where you're at. I think that, um, I think for me, I never, I didn't go to film school. I didn't, I didn't, you know, major in film studies. I I took a couple of film classes, um, in college and I've read a lot of things. Most of my film knowledge and education is, you know, from my own study and like, I'll hear something. A lot of it is, you know, like, I'll hear you say something and I'll go, hmm, I'm going to go look that up. So I look up more things that, um, based on what the people that I really respect and admire talk about. And I think that, uh, I think this is one of the things we had, this situation that happened, I think it was earlier this year or late last year, where... We made a comment about people having knowledge about film history and it blew up and we mm-hmm. ended up having kind of a Twitter fight with some people. And what was weird about that situation was that, I mean, I was the one that started that and there was this assumption that I was saying that in order to write about film, you have to have a degree in it. And I was like, why would I mm-hmm. say that? I don't have a degree in film. Um, but I do think... yeah. I'm sorry. No, go on. Well, I was going to say, but I do think that if you're going to profess to love something and you're going to say that you want to write about it and build a career writing about it, whether you have a degree behind your name or not isn't the point. Education doesn't have to equal a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a PhD. Mm -hmm. There are lots of ways to educate yourself. And I think if you're going to get into this world not just of like oh I like film but I'm going to write about it from a critical standpoint you have to educate yourself not just on the history but on theory and Mm -hmm. on all aspects of what goes into making a film in the first place I've learned so much about what production designers do or film editors you know and and I think that yeah I, I think that it's interesting to look at films from an academic perspective i don't think it's the only way or the only correct way to do it but i think that if you're going to build a career on this it at least needs to be part of your background and your perspective
1: yeah yeah no i i do agree with that and i do think i mean for me for me personally one of the reasons why i did a film degree uh was was simply because i was really interested in it i was interested in film i was interested i've always my one of my first degrees is in english uh and it's film film studies and and english uh, as a study are very similar literary studies and film studies have a lot of relationships that are going on in fact they use some of the same film some of the same theories Mm -hmm. um, and background and and we'll talk about that in a minute but um i was interested in it From an academic perspective simply because i really like the way that analysis um kind of can draw out meaning and one of the things that i actually like and this is kind of what makes me sad about some of the reactions that we see on twitter or even just some of the things that you see in in reading reviews or in reading editorials is that there is this assumption of one right answer that there is there's a correct answer to a film you know and i've talked before about like you know the ending of such and such explained Mm -hmm. and it's like there is no explanation i mean the explanation is in the film right so really all you're talking about is the synopsis of the ending if you're talking about something beyond that you're not really explaining the ending of the film what you're doing is you're analyzing it you're you're saying like okay this is what we understand from the rest of the film and here's one way to understand the ending and but it's this whole concept that there is something that can be explained and can be explained in one particular way and that that is the correct answer and one of the things that i've always liked about film and about literature and about you know all forms of art is that there isn't one correct answer like i can look at a film and analyze it from a particular perspective from my perspective and say this is what the film means and i can use evidence i can use you know comprehensive analysis i can use an argument basically a debate and say here's why this film means what it does and then you know i could turn around and write something that completely contradicts all of that in fact that's one of the things that that we learned we learned it in college and, and I learned it in grad school was being able to argue against yourself to anticipate the arguments to your theory or to your interpretation and be able to address them at some level so be like okay well here's what, here's another way to look at it and here's why I'm not looking at it like that uh, but my interpretation and your interpretation or another interpretation that I have you know 10 years down the line one is not more correct than the other. Um, as long as everyone has provided clear evidence and analysis and you're making a strong argument, so you're not using logical fallacies or anything like that. Um, and that's something that I really like about it. So I, I dislike the fact that there is so much of this, you know, we're, gonna pr- we're going to propose the solution to the film as though art is, is a problem that you can solve mathematically or scientifically. And prove one way or the other. And that seems to me antithetical to what art is and what art does. And and it's it's boring also, because it essentially says, like, okay, here's the answer, that's it, there's no there's no further discussion. Okay, so what are we gonna talk about next?
0: Mm-hmm. If
1: there's only one answer.
0: I think a perfect example of that, and you're probably gonna be annoyed that I bring up this example and this director, but I think a perfect example to sum up what you're talking about is Inception by Christopher Nolan. Because that, I know, (laughs) but that film ends in a way that seems to be ambiguous, Um, and you have all these people who are like, no, this is the way that, this is what this means. Well, he left it without a clear ending for a reason, and he Mm -hmm. has refused to tell people what he intended by that ending all these years because... He doesn't there because there it is your perspective. There are different ways of looking at it, and I think like that's just a, a clear example of what you're talking about of that, that comes to mind. There are many many examples, but but yeah, I think that everything is is from our own perspective. Um, we this is the thing that I, I it frustrates me when people try to make a film objective when they try to say well this has to mean this or that is only good or only bad because of these elements Mm -hmm. and it's like I can watch a film and really love like I mean some of my favorite movies are movies that are not very highly rated by my my fellow critics you know and that doesn't mean that I'm wrong and they're right. It just means that we see things differently and that's okay. You and I disagree about movies a lot and that's okay. Yeah. And and I think that it's actually a much more interesting conversation when smart people disagree about something.
1: Yeah. It's, it's valuable. And, and I think that there, there is this, and we're not going to talk a great deal about feminist criticism in particular, but there is this, there has been this attitude that there's particular perspective that is objective, that is correct. Mm-hmm right and the the objective viewpoint tends to be straight white male and then all of the other viewpoints tend to be analysis through essential what is essentially analysis we may not necessarily call it that when we talk about it but what is essentially analysis through non-mainstream perspective and and so that that becomes this that then gets you know you talk about politicization that then (laughs) turns into a a much broader argument and of course film you know film doesn't exist in a vacuum as we're going to discuss film is is cultural and film is political uh because it's being produced and no matter what you do about it, it is being produced in a particular society in a particular time period and that has some effect on what we see and what we experience and what we understand and um and one of, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about before is, uh, is the way that when you watch older, when you watch particular older films, there are things that were perfectly acceptable in, you know, 1945 or even 1980 or 1990 or 2000 mm-hmm. that we were just, that people just sort of brushed off. You're we just like, oh, this is normal, you know, whatever. And then we look back on it and go like, well, actually that wasn't okay. Like that, those jokes were not okay. Or that representation was not okay. Um, that, and that's not saying again, that it was necessarily okay in 1990, but it was something that was more acceptable in 1990 and is less acceptable now, um, just from a mainstream perspective. So there's always, we're always looking at everything according to our own time period, according to our own personal experiences, individual experiences, and also according to our cultural experiences, uh, and where we're coming from and how we're understanding, a piece of art that was produced yesterday or that was produced a hundred years ago,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. I think when it comes to studying film, um, uh, as a discipline or even just on your own, I think that what some people don't seem to understand is it's not about uh shaping your perspective, it's about helping you understand your own perspective, yeah. in, absolutely, in a yeah. lot of ways, yeah. I mean,
1: yeah, I think that that's a good way to look at it,
0: yeah, because I think. I mean, with, with any, like you were saying, I mean, it's not just film, any sort of literary analysis uses the same, a lot of the same theories, a lot of the same ideas. And it's not because there's, it's not to learn, like, this is the way to read a film. This is the way to read a novel. This is the way, you know, it's, it helps Mm -hmm. us. Like, as I, I mean, I majored in political science and I studied a lot of political theory in college and it wasn't about, like, oh, now I understand how to think about politics. It's because now I understand kind of some of the ideas that have gone into shaping the politics of our world. And yeah. it helped me solidify how I feel about it. it. didn't teach me what to think. It just taught me how to think.
1: Yeah, and there, there are some, in terms of film, there are some theories that are going to appeal to you more than... Right. Other theories there's some approaches that are going to make better sense to you as as a person as an individual than other approaches and that's that's okay there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with approaching film from from a Marxist perspective versus from a feminist perspective and you can even marry the two and the two forms of interpretation in fact very often you want to so mm-hmm. um, so one of the things that I, I wanted to talk about is not just the the history of film theory so film theory and criticism has been around really since film was created right so film kind of begins to come into being in various forms at the end of the 19th century that's when you begin to get actual moving pictures as it were
0: and which i just want to pause and say it makes sense that film criticism would be born around the same time because it's not like literary criticism didn't exist so it's just as you have new art forms you're going to have people who are going to move into critiquing those art forms
1: yeah and and in different ways of understanding it so so among the first people who actually began looking at film as as art right and they the and this is all married to the history of film so film has a lot of different permutations initially uh different ways that that we viewed film so by the time we actually get to the point where we're viewing film in the way that we tend to which is on a screen in an audience right so mm-hmm. not via um like small nickelodeons not via you know magic lantern images or anything like that already there was a lot of philosophical and and theoretical discussion cropping up about it and about what film could do what is it intended for you know is it intended to simply be spectacle so to show these moving images of things that people have never gotten to see or have certainly never seen in the same way, never seen up close and personal, right? So things like circuses or trains arriving, um, or you know, kinetic movement of the of camera, people in photographs moving. I mean, that's that's kind of the beginning of it all, and that's really that was very surprising, and shocking, and interesting. In the I showed a friend.
0: Sorry, I'm totally jumping and interrupting. I showed a friend no, a trip to the moon once and he was like, this is so cheesy. And I was like, think about when this was made and how amazing this was for the first people that got to see it because they had never seen anything like this before.
1: Exactly. And it's fabulous. Like, it, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, you know, we're go- we're creating something that is not real, you know, and we know that it isn't real. We know that this isn't a documentary about people flying to the moon right right but you're still seeing it you're still seeing these images and and we're conditioned and conditioned that period to look at images as real
0: right and it was decades before we went to the moon
1: <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> so so and i mean you know as cheesy maybe as it looks to us now it is the foundation of a lot mm-hmm. of cinema and it it's yeah. the f- foundation of fiction film and fictional narrative film mm-hmm. so already there's all this conversation that gets building up about okay what is film what can it do what does it do and a lot of the initial types of film theories uh spring out of philosophical psychological and art and literary theories Um, so if you look at any sort of book of film theory um, a lot of what you're going to see is not necessarily at least not at the beginning is not Theoretics that apply directly to film, but rather theoretics that apply directly to narrative, so art, or uh, so um, literature and theater. Uh, Theoretics that apply to visual elements, so art. And then theoretics that apply to the kind of the more nebulous areas of philosophy and, um, and psychology. So sort of the underlying elements of uh, of film, but of course Film in itself is its own things, because film marries, uh, it marries image, it marries, uh, eventually, once you get into um, the sound era, it marries sound. But even before that, you were talking about uh, most films had some kind of a soundtrack, so they had, a, a, if it, even if it was just a piano player or an orchestra playing um, an orchestration behind the film there were uh in various countries there were like actual narrators people who would stand up and read out a story as the film was happening uh and so there were all different ways that sound actually related to um the image that was on the screen so you've got image you've got sound you have narrative right and again this was an argument that that occurred very very early in cinematic history about whether or not film is is a is sort of a play on screen which if you look at some early films that's essentially what it is it's a very static camera and you're just watching what's happening on the screen Mm -hmm. um or is it is it more artistic is it more like is it about you know how do we move the camera how can we like show weird and wonderful things you know does it have to be a narrative art form does it can it be you know completely disconnected and uh and more like sort of visual plastic arts where you have collages and you have all of these connections that are just very vague and not really forming a narrative of anything of course we've now moved more into uh at least in terms of mainstream film production we've moved more into the you know narrative cinema one as it were uh, at least at, at a broad in a broad sense, but so these these were all things that get kind of melded into film. One of the final things that I think is always very intriguing about cinema is uh, the fact that there really isn't a single author, and <laughs> we're going to talk a bit more about this issue <laughs> in <laughs> a <so> minute. <laughs> Uh, but there isn't a single author of a film. And by that, I mean, there is not a writer. You know, when you, t- when you talk about a novel, you're talking about one person and maybe an editor or a couple of editors, but really one person sitting down and writing a book or writing a poem or writing a play. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you talk about art, when you talk about painting or sculpture, something like that, usually, and sometimes there are other artists that contribute like backgrounds and stuff like that, but usually you're talking about a single art- artistic vision from one person or maybe a couple of people, but generally not more than that. Uh, you know, music and theater is a little more nebulous because you do have all of these other artists who are contributing to it, but again, the composer is the person who creates the music and who writes the music down and then other people perform what he has written, right? And you get the same thing in, in theater. And so there's, there's a little bit more, you know, more artistic combinations uh, in those two art forms, but then you get to film and film is everything it's a director it's a producer it is a writer it very often more than one writer it is actors It is costume designers set designers it's a cinematographer so someone who's opera some sometimes simply someone who's operating a camera versus someone who's actually constructing the lighting um you have all of these different artists not just contributing to the production of a single vision but also having dialogue with each other and saying like well i can light it like this but i really think it would look better like this how do we want to understand this scene you have actors contributing their perspectives um and this varies from film to film obviously but you have a lot of people coming in so it's very much a collective medium and because you've got such a a, a, a art form that is so many people that is so collective to begin with and is a kind of mishmash of all of these other forms of art you come out with something that is completely new and so a lot of the theories that in, that form kind of the basis of film criticism and a film theory to begin with begin to fragment you begin to say well we can't apply this perfectly to cinema because cinema is doing something different cinema you know if i apply um a literary theory to uh to a film i can maybe talk about the narrative i could talk about the structure all of that i can't you know i can't necessarily talk about the image because if i'm talking about literature i'm not talking about image uh it's the same thing with with art with an art theory or even with theories uh, attached to theater and performance performance art uh so there's a whole bunch of stuff that kind of goes into film that eventually comes out with the fact that we need an entire new way of talking about this and we need to understand not just these individual aspects but how they all work together because that's ultimately what film does every single frame is all of these different aspects of of cinema working together uh so i think that that's kind of the basis and probably one of the reasons why film theory and film criticism is so fucked up uh in a lot of ways is because a, a lot of it is just trying to sort of navigate okay how am i gonna how how do we approach this how do we understand it and how do we talk about it and we're talking about it in so many different ways and in so many different terms and we're also trying to express it all verbally uh which is or you know is on the written page which in itself is difficult you know if you ever read uh, film studies books where you're talking about okay let's let's try to understand what cross cutting is right how do you write about what cross cutting is you can show frames uh, you can try to describe cross cutting but you really know cross-cutting when you see it. The The easiest way is to look at it and to say, okay, this is what cross-cutting is. But then we're <laughs> going to talk about non-diegetic sound and diegetic sound. And here's how those things overlap. So we're also having that experience. Meanwhile, it's all ephemeral because as soon as you hit pause or as soon as you stop it, that's that's stopped. It becomes a static image. You lose the sound. You lose the movement. You You lose the action. So... Film theory is fucked up, is what I'm trying to say. And it's difficult to pinpoint <laughs> how to use it and how to talk about film in um, in a way that is completely, that that actually takes into account all of these different issues and all of this this collectivity that we've been talking about.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've said a lot.
0: I'm sorry. I just said a lot. <laughs> no, no, I'm glad you did. I, I'm just, I'm not sure what to contribute here, but I think that. I think that one of the things that happens and we've talked about this a lot, but when you have people who haven't studied any of it, who don't even talk to the people who make films, you know, who, who just kind of, mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons, sorry, I'm kind of starting and stopping sentences here, but uh, it's cause I'm trying to figure out exactly what I'm trying to say. But um, I was thinking about a lot of things as you were talking. One of the things I think one of the reasons I think people try to um, ignore theory, try to say that film isn't political or most film isn't political or that uh, can't movies just be entertaining? Like, that's something that we hear a lot. And I think it's because they don't they don't necessarily want to have to think about it. They want to be able to just like what they like and not have to explain themselves. And that's fine. But... If you're going to be talking about film as more than just like, oh, it was cool when that truck exploded, then you really do need to at least understand some of the different theories because most of the people that are making the films have at least some basic knowledge of this. And they and even if it's not overtly the reason that, you know, Wes Anderson decides to make his movies pastel because he read a book about it in college, um, there's still like those things get into... They seep into their their, you know, subconscious or their conscious level and, and affect the films that are made. And um, yeah. I think that... But I think us understanding and taking the time to learn about that, if you want to write about film, if you want... Even if you don't want to write about it, but if you want to be able to watch films as something more than just entertainment, then it's very valuable to at least understand some of these theories and some of the history behind them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that I wanted to suggest to any to anyone who's listening that is a critic or that is just a film viewer, someone who likes film and and you know doesn't necessarily write about it, but wants to kind of get how film does some of the things that it does, I would suggest attempting um, a, what's what I would refer to from a literature perspective as a close reading. Uh, And then can also be described as uh, scene fragmentation or, um, yeah, scene scene fragmentation. So in other words, breaking down a section of a film uh, into its component parts and thinking about how those components work together and what they mean as they work together. So one of the things that they had us do in, in film school was take a five minute sequence and it could be any sequence of any film that you wanted right just a five minute five minutes it could be the climax of a of a fight scene it could just be uh two people having a conversation at a kitchen table didn't matter and break it down right okay so what do we see what is the image um what what do we what's the narrative right so what is what part of the story is being told what are the characters doing are there two characters just talking to one another okay fine so what's being said what are the techniques that are being used so not just noticing the way that the camera cuts right where are their cuts is there a cut uh is you know is one character framed in the center of the frame is one character kind of off to the side of the frame? Uh, and how many cuts are there? If you're talking about Alfred Hitchcock's rope, there are no cuts. And that's something that you notice. So you notice the way that the characters move around each other. If they move at all, if they don't move, are they just static? Are they just standing there looking at one another? Or is there movement in their physicality, in their face, you know, their facial expressions, all of that? notice what kind of music there is is there music is there a background soundtrack is it diegetic or non-diegetic uh non-diegetic and i may get this wrong non-diegetic meaning that um it is it's music that is within the uh within the world of the film so there's a radio playing in the background mm-hmm. uh, diegetic the being barking. yeah exactly diegetic sound being stuff that is overlaid so a soundtrack that is being that is not a part of the the world of the film but is actually um you know it's it's like uh, a good example is, is kubrick's uh use of sound of sound in uh, 2001 space odyssey so like you know the the monolith and the sun coming up and all that stuff and the big booming soundtrack of course that's not what you're actually hearing in space uh, that's not a part of the film. It's or not a part of the scene, really. So and how and again, how does that sound work? Does it completely obscure the dialogue? Can you not hear certain things because there's a dog barking or there's blender in the background or the music playing on the radio is too loud? Or can you hear everything? Can you understand everything that's happening? Um, so you know, the the other thing, other things to so notice: color palette is it in black and white or is it in color if it's in black and white how are the shadows used how is the lighting used if it's in color is it really rich and saturated there's a lot of reds and greens and blues or is it really muted uh is it very washed out you know there's not a lot of color that you can notice so all of these things that that take place within a 5 minute section of a film are ways things that the film is doing and some of them might seem more important than others some of them might it might the dialogue might be emphasized or the lack of dialogue might be emphasized um but it's one way to kind of begin to understand how film is does what it does and how it builds meaning and how it looks at meaning um and and it's also very exciting because you go like wow this is doing a lot in like a five minute section it's fascinating to actually look at and i think it's fascinating as a viewer and it's it's also fascinating as as anyone who is a critic or anyone who wants to understand film at at a deeper level than just like i like this i don't like this which i would hope that that's a lot of people i don't know
0: (laughs) yeah well i think that when you do break down a piece of a film like that and and i mean someone who hasn't tried this go pick a movie that you just love you know and and just choose your favorite scene from it and just watch that scene and and it it helps to go frame by frame for some of that too and really take it all in and look at what's happening and i think that when people take the time to do that they understand that i mean most directors even if they're making you know jackass or you know spy kids or something they have an intent behind that movie they're not usually just trying to make mindless entertainment that people are gonna watch while they're munching on popcorn like they want they want people to really feel something even if they're making a movie that is you know the fast and the furious or whatever um like they want people to to feel and to take something away from that What what they want that person to take away is obviously going to be different if you're watching Fast and the Furious versus if you're watching Brokeback Mountain. But the point is that the director, the people that went into making that film, they want the audience to have some kind of connection. And I think that if you if you take the time to really study that, then I think that you can find a richer experience, even in movies that seem like they're just mindless entertainment.
1: Uh, I am going to correct myself really quickly because I as always I always confuse diegetic and non-diegetic sound. Diegetic is, it is the sound
0: on screen and off screen.
1: Yeah, it's okay. it's, it's diegesis. So die- diegetic is with, is originated within the film. Uh, non-diegetic is originating outside the film. So diegetic is like the radio playing in the background non-diegetic is like an orchestration p- being played over okay. the scene so i or just like wanted to fully clarify that being
0: added that kind of thing yeah
1: being added yeah. to the to the scene because i always get confused as because There's I don't so know many my terms <laughs> <laughs> i just yeah. like for whatever reason it's that that specific thing like whatever i wrote papers i was just like i better look this up first because <laughs> i don't know man I don't know, but see, you know, even I get things wrong, as brilliant as I am.
0: Uh, (laughs) I'm going to isolate that audio.
1: Even I get things wrong, as brilliant Uh as I am. Uh, It's going to be used against me in so many ways. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) The other day I was recording a podcast and one of the co-hosts said, Karen is always right about everything. And I said, can you please send that to me? (laughs) I'm going to use that as my new... uh, (laughs) ringtone
1: see there you go So, so so there there you go I mean that's that's kind of the way the films are analyzed and you know and we all but we all take different theoretic approaches and I promise you if you're a film critic even if you don't know that you're doing it and many of us don't really like you know when I'm just writing a regular film review you know I'm not really analyzing anything i don't really think about like oh i'm taking this from a feminist perspective or something like that but that's pretty much what i always do i wind up talking about you know how are the women used in the film and something like that so but there are a lot of different theoretic approaches to to cinema and i'm not we're not going to describe or explain all of them i think most of them are pretty self-explanatory like if you don't know what they are you can definitely go look them up but um, but so you've got Freudian or psychoanalytic theories, and again, this is just really applying psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theories to film.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You've got feminist theory, which is something we're going to talk about much more in depth, I think next week. Um, yeah. You've got race-based theories, so issues of the way that not particularly non-white people are represented in cinema, at least in, in terms of American cinema, or the way that race generally is represented uh queer theory so this reading into sort of uh, very often homosexual subtext uh particularly in mainstream hollywood films um or more mainstream films but also overtext obviously so you have films that are are textually queer like a uh, portrait of a lady on fire um marxist theories uh which is going to class based issues of class uh genre theory genre theory is much more mutable because you're then you're dealing with the kind of dictates of a genre like horror or uh comedy screwball comedy um subgeneric theories that deal with you know so romantic comedies have a particular structure particular rules that they obey or rules that they break and then how do they break those rules and how do they fit within the genre that they're representative of um Reception theories, so how the audience is intended to receive the film and how the audience did receive the film. So those are a little bit harder in a lot of ways because, uh, particularly if you're talking about older films, because you're talking about the perceived way that the audience of the time period would understand the theory mm-hmm. or would understand the film, which is very difficult to talk about and to prove, but. particularly if you're filtering it into other discussions about the way that films have been received or um cultural depictions it can be very interesting and you can get a lot of information a lot of historical background to how films were received uh and and how people talked about them when they were released and Mm. one of the most overarching theories the one that has (laughs) continued to plague us since the dawn of of The 1960s, or really the 1950s, uh, auteur theory. So, I've talked a lot, Karen, do do you want to give a rundown (laughs) of auteur theory? Do you want to try to just be like, okay, here's what it is, guys, and here's why you need to stop? (sighs)
0: So, this is one that it's like, I feel like I have a hard time actually explaining what it is, but I will try, um... It's basically, I mean, in a nutshell, it's basically the idea of the the, the auteur, which is French for author, that the director is the author of the film. And there's a lot of different nuances to even that definition. Um, and as you've kind of talked about already, the fact that, you know, a film is very collaborative medium, but like, is the director giving the direction and basically kind of compelling his team into fulfilling his vision or is it truly a collaborative process? The thing about auteur theory is that it really is about just looking at, at least my understanding of it is it's about looking at the film entirely from the perspective of the director is the one who has basically created this film and uh it's looking at it from that perspective so then probably one of the easiest examples to talk about there would be hitchcock because he his films have a very distinct style a very distinct um feel mood atmosphere um all of that and i think it's easy never mind i'm not gonna say what i was gonna say but um i think that auteur theory is is kind of an interesting thing because a, it, it, and it started it was Francois, Francois Truffaut and, and some other early critics, Truffaut of course became mm. a director himself, but they were the ones who kind of developed this way of looking at film, but it's become sort of something that a lot of people look at as sort of like a law of like, this is how film works, <laughs> and it's like well mm. that's not the case at all so um yeah that's in a nutshell yeah. my understanding of auteur theory
1: yeah I, I mean that's 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 pretty much it. it's the the idea uh the idea that the director is the primary driving creative personal creative force mm-hmm. uh behind a film and and yeah people like hitchcock um howard hawks uh orson wells charlie chaplin very yeah. i mean very often some of the the biggest auteurs were also ones who appeared in their own films as someone like or chaplin who not only wrote and directed their own films but also starred in them um and so were obviously major creative forces in shaping the uh the narrative of the film and the approach to the film
0: yeah well in looking more modern day you could say someone I mean, people are going to throw out, like, oh, Christopher Nolan or Wes Anderson. I think that probably one of the best examples of this in modern day is Paul Thomas Anderson, who tends to lately write and direct his own stuff. He's also been acting as his own cinematographer, his own film editor. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so I think that, yeah, in those cases, like, definitely uh, you have to look at it as very much being a product of his... Uh, his work and his vision but i think a lot of other directors even if they have even if their films have kind of a similar look a lot of times that's not just because it's the same director they have a lot of the same department heads you know they'll use the same cinematographers Mm -hmm. over and over again they'll use the same production designers so they kind of all come together knowing the type of film that they want to make together
1: yeah yeah and and also you know you get you mentioned Wes Anderson, you get the, those directors who have a stable of actors that they use mm-hmm. over and over and over again. Um, Christopher Guest uh, is yeah. good one, although Christopher Guest is a little different because his films are very collaborative and they're very much very, about yeah yeah. Uh, same thing with um, Mike Lee, who is very emphasizes the the collaborative aspect of of film. So on the one on the one hand, if you read like Mike Lee's work or Christopher Guest's work via the director, you'd be like, oh, he's an auteur. But on the other hand, you're like, well, actually, he's not because of the way that he works. That you're, you know, you're actually talking about um, a huge collaboration between a whole group of people, uh, in which he just sort of guides it, you know, mm-hmm. es- essentially. But so, yeah, that's and one of the complications that you run into when you begin to talk about auteur theory is that there's always a problem when you're talking about any kind of collaborative medium uh, that in saying that That's well, why
0: they're theories and not laws.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that that this should all be filtered through a view of of a single person, right? And mm-hmm. the the one person who's like guiding and directing and controlling everything. Um of course this has become as you're saying this has become very popularized, it's become a big thing. Uh, and and we tend to to treat this as the cult of the director that um it's the director who is in control the director who makes all of the choices the director who does everything uh and everybody else is just sort of there um and and is there to be shaped and to be guided and everything which of course is not true on any film and that includes films made by alfred hitchcock uh, mm-hmm. and, and I, I'm always in kind of a weird position because on the one hand, I'm like, well, tour theory, yeah, I don't really agree with a lot of it. On the other hand, there is definitely something to be said for certain directors, uh, people like Hitchcock or Wells that have a definite style and a definite emphasis and a definite through line, um, across their, their oofs. And I think that that's part of it. And, and very often one of the things that kind of gets ignored um, when talking about auteur theory, it isn't just about control, but it's about the way that that similar concerns, similar thematics, similar images, et cetera, develop over the course of an entire career. Uh, so it's very often auteurs, it's hard to talk about them in anything but retrospect because you never know what they're going to produce next you never know what a director is going to do next that might kind of break that whole concept of the auteur i always find howard hawks as an interesting one because hawks directed all kinds of films he did like screwball comedies um he did uh you know he did westerns he did like all of these things and so hawks has kind of this weird thing with auteur where he's not working in a single genre he's not appearing in his films or anything but there are similar thematic concerns that are running throughout uh, many of his works Mm -hmm. so we did have a question about auteur theory that fits right into this uh at noah underscore saturn said should auteur theory be taken seriously or should it be considered just a bunch of french navel gazing i mean my argument is that auteur theory is not is a good theory and it can be applied with carefully applied <laughs> uh to individual directors and individual and you know sometimes individual ooze and runs of films and things like that but it should not be taken as a catch-all thing for the way that film works or the way that cinema works um, that's my perspective on it. I think that it's been misused and misread, and it has turned into this cult of the director. Uh, but that it, it it can be very useful in the way, again, as, as critics and as viewers, in the way that we look at certain kinds of films, at the careers of certain people.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I personally wouldn't dismiss it as French navel gazing, but I do think that a lot of people use it as an excuse not to look deeper at films. Mm -hmm. um like we just look at oh well you know we know what to expect from a movie by you know bong jun ho no we don't he's made like seven or eight films you know we know what to expect from yorgos lanthimos no we sure don't every one of his films they may have similar elements to them but they're very different from each other you know and and, yeah, I think that the problem is, that emerges is is exactly as you say. It's the cult of the director. And I think it's much more about this assumption, like, oh, because this person made this movie and I liked every other movie they've made, obviously I'm going to like this one and it's going to, you know, I know what to expect. But we never know what to expect. I mean, mm-hmm. I dread the day that Taika Waititi finally makes a movie I don't like. <laughs> but I know it's <laughs> probably going to happen at some point, you know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, probably will. <laughs> and that's okay, and that's okay. You know what? Mm-hmm. It's fine. That's not like that. Doesn't mean that you know he's a bad director or anything like
0: that. Exactly. It's just the, exactly. Know. But yeah, I think that he- I think that really it's become. I think O-Tour theory has kind of become American navel gazing, <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think that it's it. Like I said, I think it's, it's an excuse not to look deeper or to just rally around someone who has a a filmography with an aesthetic that you enjoy. And I don't think that it's really as much. I think when, when it was first, you know, being bandied about and written about, I think that they had some very specific intentions behind that idea, but I think that it's become very, you know, very like filtered down and, and boiled down to, Mm-hmm. almost not really mean much
1: yeah no i do i i agree with that i think that yeah it's an interesting theory it is not a perfect theory and like any theory you know of course everybody who proposes it thinks that they're right because that's just the nature of everything but um you know we, we always have to take it and then be like okay that's interesting but we can't apply it across the board uh exactly. and that's important to recognize also
0: so I and think how that- do you know that because we've talked about auteur theory, we've talked about a number of directors, and how many women have we talked about?
1: <laughs> yes, that is another point. Uh, you know, I think that maybe we should address that when we talk about feminist film criticism. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of some of these issues, yeah, a lot of a lot of what we're talking about is very very male centric, and mm-hmm. part of the reason for that is is the nature of culture of the last you know hundred years. and and part of that is is also um obviously uh patriarchy and 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 patriarchal dominance in in film criticism and in film uh generally in in film production so i i do think that we should talk a little bit before we you know completely close things out i think that we should talk a little bit about contemporary film criticism and also the the big ones. So we've talked a lot about theory and academe, and scholarly kind of scholarly approaches and these much more heady concepts. But what about people like Ebert and uh and Pauline kale and Andrew sars who by the way was the one who brought auteur theory to America in a lot of ways we we have him to thank. Uh thank you so much Andrew. Just Thanks, did a great job. But, you know, so like people like Roger Ebert or Gene Siskel or um, Pauline Kael have kind of been elevated as these, these big names in film criticism. But, I mean, what, you, what are our feelings about them at a, at a personal level? You know, I, I think that at a, at a certain, to a certain degree, you know, you always look for critics that you agree with um, or that you, you appreciate their perspective, even if you don't always agree with it. Uh, but there are some that have become kind of venerated as they can do no wrong. And that's that's where it begins to get a little problematic to me. What do you think?
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I it's funny. I grew up watching Siskel and Ebert. And, uh, like, I mean, I remember being eight and nine years old, watching them talk about movies that I was never going to be old enough to see, you know? And, like... Um, and I was just I ate it up. I loved it. Not because I thought they somehow just like knew so much, but I just enjoyed watching them talk about film. And again, I I think that I preferred more when it was one thumb up and one thumb down than when they were two thumbs up on a movie, because it was really interesting not only to hear them call each other idiots, but um, but to really hear them each talk about why they felt like their perspective was correct and the other was not. And, and to talk about the things that they connected to that the other one didn't. I, I always found that really fascinating. And I think that kind of like with this whole notion of the, the cult of the director, I think there's the cult of the film critic too. And I think that that Mm -hmm. rose from people like Siskel and Eber, like Pauline Kael, like Leonard Malton, like all these people that have been widely respected for so long And I think that uh, there's this tendency to deify them. Like, I still to this day will see someone write a critique of a current film and they're quoting Roger Ebert. And it's like, okay, he's not even alive to see this movie. Why is his thought on a different movie relevant to this one? You know, and... And it's just it's really interesting to see that the point isn't to to necessarily agree with them or to have them shape. Again, this comes back to what we're talking about with some theories, too. It's not to have film critics shape our understanding of a movie. Sometimes it's really helpful just to read what other people have written to understand and to kind of point what I'm thinking about it. Like you've written some stuff where I'm like, okay, thank you. Now I can put into words what I was feeling about this. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's that's the point of it. I think that people like Siskel Niebert made it like popularized film criticism. Yeah. And like with anything else, when something becomes popular, the point of it is lost. And I think that's exactly what has happened now and i think that that's why film criticism has been so watered down and it's so much less uh academic and really about what the film means and more just about influencing what movies people choose to go see
1: yeah yeah no i agree i mean in, in terms of i think that you're right Yeah, i mean like like many people i think that we both grew up watching siskel and ebert um as like kind of our first exposure to to, to criticism of cinema uh mm-hmm. And one of the things that, that I, I remember is that everybody talks about Roger Ebert. Very few people talk about Gene Siskel anymore. I always yeah. agreed with Gene Siskel more.
0: I did too, actually. Than
1: I, than I did than I did with Roger Ebert. And I I honestly and I'm gonna be I'm gonna be eviscerated for this, I don't <laughs> like a lot of Ebert's criticism um mm-hmm. i think that he's very sexist in a lot of ways and some of this can be excusable in terms of the time period in which he was writing him but you know go back and read some of his reviews and the way that he talks about women um and there's there's a lot of sexism that bleeds through mm-hmm. and there's a lot of stuff that you know we would not be okay with if if other male critics wrote about it but because it's roger ebert would kind of brush it off um i found him very sort of overbearing And definitely one of those film critics that believes that his answer is the right answer. And sometimes, you know, I would agree with it, and sometimes I wouldn't. But I always felt like Siskel was much more um, varied, was much more, like, thoughtful, I guess, in his responses. Uh, In some ways, less emotional, less, like, an emotional reaction to, I really like this, or I really don't like it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, but yeah, I think that at the end of the day, we can't continue to uh to sort of elevate roger ebert as being the the authority of cinema um because he's not and because that's not his job and that was never his job uh and and honestly you know as much as i think that he often thought he was right and other people were wrong i also think that he knew that he was a critic and that a critic is essentially offering a very informed opinion um and his opinions were informed but that doesn't mean that you can appeal to him and say well roger ebert said this therefore that's the right answer and i think that we see that a lot in discussion of him that if he said something uh that therefore there is no arguing with it and that's that's not what is intended in film criticism and that's not the way we should be taking his his words or anything like that um and, and i it's, think that's the, the same... biggest
0: sorry go on I was was gonna say I think the biggest example of that of him being like him understanding that he's not the only voice that matters is the fact that even after Gene Siskel died he got another co-host that you know he had he went through some guests and then he eventually had Richard Roper he had you know he had other people that were on the show with him it didn't just become the Roger Ebert show where he just told you what he thought about film he always had other people that often disagreed with him because Mm -hmm. it's much more interesting when people have different points of view.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And in in terms of Cisco and Ebert, I think that this is a a good segue in terms of Cisco and Ebert, whether or not this was something that they intended, I don't think that they did. I think this was just more about a network decision because they were Mm -hmm. among the first to really talk about film, you know, on, on television as like a, as its own, you know, film criticism as its own form of entertainment. But they unfortunately popularized the binary. They popularized the thumbs up, thumbs down view of film. You know, is this a good film? Thumbs up. Is this a bad film? Thumbs down. We like it. We don't like it. uh which has then transmogrified in more recent years into Rotten Tomatoes and the algorithm of you Mm -hmm. know the you know fresh fresh review. Yes, this is great rotten review no we don't like it and i, I know that for myself as, as a critic and i think that this is true for a lot of critics i find that really difficult unless i really hate a film and there is a very particular reason why i don't like it most films come somewhere in the middle it's like oh, it does a lot of really good things here it does a, a few bad things here and how am i going to measure you know, the really good things, so yes, fresh tomato, or uh, the really bad things, rotten tomato, you know? And and then it turns into this kind of like, well, you know, how much support do I want this film to have? It turns into this very weird dialogue that gets going when really it should be a spectrum and it should be a, a, um, a more nuanced take than just this is good, this is bad.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I shouldn't... Like, there have been a lot of times where I thought, okay, I'll probably review this film, you know, on Award Circuit or or on Citizen Dame, and then I kind of just don't. And then we'll we'll just talk about it on podcast, and I think, oh, that's good enough. But then I see, oh, it's really got a bad score on Rotten Tomatoes. I want to help boost that, because this is a really good movie that I loved, You know, so then I ended up writing a review in defense of a film just to try to boost that score so other people will give it a chance you know and it's like that's yeah it's sad to have to do that because i don't always want to have to write my thoughts about things or sometimes i'll look at it and go well i don't have to bother writing about it because it doesn't need my help or or whatever it's just this weird thing that happens and and especially i mean i write for a site that you know we it's not Citizen Dame, but, you know, award circuit, I mean, it's it's also a business, and Mm -hmm. so that has to come into effect, too. I mean, I never, I am one that if I really don't like a film, I'm gonna be honest about it. It doesn't matter if they sent me a free book about it, you know, (laughs) like, but there are a lot of people who they let their official uh, written statements or coverage of a film be influenced by what sort of things they might have gotten for Mm -hmm. that and that's a whole other host of problems and it makes it very difficult to know uh whose reviews really matter and whose are not bought but you know influenced influenced yes and well, I think that that's where you just really—it's about having to get to know the people behind it, the people that mm-hmm. are are writing it, and knowing yeah. who you can trust and and who you can't, and who you agree with, who 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 tends to look at things the same, you know, similarly to the way that you do.
1: Well, and I, and I'll often look at you know people who have written rotten reviews or or you know things that have been mm-hmm. set as rotten or set as fresh or something like that, and very often. They'll actually be quite nuanced. like it will actually be yeah. like, well, I didn't like this aspect of the film, but it also does some other things very well, and it's still rated as rotten. And so then me as a reader, I'm like, oh, well, that's sort of an interesting way to look at it. So that that changes my perspective on the film. but that's that's the problem with the binary. there's there's this, you know, it's either this or it's that. And it's like, well that's but that's not that isn't how film works. That's not how mm-hmm. art works. And there are a lot of films that I that I love that I know are not great films particularly. So if you had to say to me, well would this be fresh or rotten? I'm like, I mean, I guess it's rotten, but I think that that's really <laughs> terrible to say because I love it. Like, you know, it's it's stupid or it's you're ridiculous, but I love I love it. Like it, I I still enjoy it. And mm-hmm. and you know, and, and I I don't know if there's any real way to escape from this, but I do think that, that you should kind of find those people that you trust and listen to them and be like, okay, you know, I understand what you're talking about um, in view of, of this film, and I understand what you like and what you don't like and what works and what doesn't.
0: Yeah, but there's also, like you just brought up, there's a lot of value in really reading and understanding why people feel the opposite. You know, a perfect example yeah. of that for me was... The Last Thing He Wanted, which premiered at Sundance this year and then it went to Netflix. It's De Reese's latest movie. And it was I mean, I don't like to give one star reviews. If I really dislike a movie that much, I usually just won't bother to write about it. But this was one of those situations where I had to. It was at Sundance. So I was just like, oh, well, okay. <laughs> so I did. Uh, I looked at Rotten Tomatoes that had a seven percent. I was like, who the hell are the seven percent that gave this movie a fresh rating? <laughs> I really wanted to know, so I read and I was just like, oh, okay. I'm really glad that I understood this because for for and I didn't it didn't change my opinion at all, but yeah. it was interesting to read what they valued in that film that meant little or nothing to me. Or that it just wasn't part of my own personal experience and, and understanding of the world, so it's not something that that I considered when I was watching it. And yeah, it didn't it didn't change how I felt at all, but it was valuable for me to understand someone else's point of view.
1: and and uh, I think that one of the other things we want that we wanted to talk about in terms of contemporary film criticism, and I have a feeling that this has been going on for a long time, long before you know we've gotten into this more. Everything is is forever on the internet, um, <laughs> but in, in talking about festival bias, yes, and and you, I know that you wanted to address that uh, a little bit in terms of of our contemporary moment.
0: <laughs> hmm. Yeah, and I I think that it's something. It's festivals. It's also um, premieres. I think that there's something that you really you really need to be mindful if you're looking for what critics are saying about a film. Or if you're yourself writing about films, you really need to consider the way that you first experienced it, I think, is is really important part of that. Because for me, there have been movies where I'm sitting there, I'm in this crowded theater full of very excited fans. The filmmakers are there. The actors are sitting six seats in front of me, you know, or whatever. And it's really exciting, and then you're like, "Man, yeah, this movie's great. I'm just enjoying this experience so much." And then later, sometimes you go back and revisit that movie, and you're like, "Why did I like this? This isn't like <laughs> this is not good," you know? Or, yeah, yeah. or like, um, this has happened at Sundance too, or other festivals I've been to, where it's like you come out of the movie, everyone's buzzing about it, everyone starts talking about how great it is, so you feel. Not that I, not that I write based on what anybody else thinks, but I kind of, sometimes for myself, and I know other people do this too, you kind of have this, like, it just, it, it taints your perspective. It colors it a little bit where it's, it's harder to be objective based on the circumstances. And so I think that whether you're a fan wanting to know if this movie that you've been very excited about that's premiering at Cannes, whether it's good or you're a critic that is very excited because you got to be the first one to see, you know, whatever at Telluride. I think that those perspectives need to, you need to understand that when you're reading that review, when you're writing that review, because it really does make a difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we've talked, we've talked also about specific films where this has happened, where there seems to be this, you know, kind of, it's, it's the YouTube comment sort of things. First, you know, I was the first mm-hmm. one to write it. I was the first one to talk about it. I was the first one to give my reaction to I it. I
0: didn't say anything substantive or valuable, but I was
1: first. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, and a lot of the time, and when you really think about it, and this is true for most art, that, you know, you need a little bit of time. To, mm-hmm. to think about a film and to write about it and to, you know, be like, how did I really feel about this? And what really worked here? You know, is it really much more ephemeral? that's like, oh, this was kind of a nice experience, but there's not much to it, you know, or is it deeper than that? And there are films, I think that this is true for everybody who's written about film, there are films that I have hated or been like, oh, I didn't really like this. And then as I thought about it and wrote about it more, it's just like, actually, there were a lot of really interesting things here. Um, Mm -hmm. there've been other films that I was like, oh, I love this. And then the more that I wrote, just like, did I, did I like it? I'm not certain (laughs) if I did, you know, is is this really as good as I thought it was, or was it just the, the experience of it? And if you don't have time to let that kind of percolate a little bit and to really consider what it is that you saw and, and your feelings about it, uh you know you could come out and be like you know oh this film was great and then three months later you know when the film actually gets released in theaters you're like i'm so sorry <laughs>
0: mm-hmm um oh yeah There's yeah, yeah. there there was what was it there was a movie a couple years ago i saw at sundance lizzie with mm-hmm. um uh, uh kristen, kristen stewart? stewart and chloe savini mm-hmm. um I remember seeing that movie and I really liked it. And then I was, then the trailer came out and that was my very first pull quote in a trailer. And I was just like, Oh man, I hope I still like that movie. Cause it was like eight months later. <laughs> <laughs> and I did still like it, but I felt a little differently about it than when I had first seen it at Sundance. It was kind of weird.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, the festival circuit and, and, just to to those listeners who are not film critics everything be very careful about relying on festival as we were saying as karen's saying be careful about relying on festival reviews to decide whether or not you want to see a film wait for a little while see what other reviews come out as you get closer to actual release dates because yeah there there is this tendency to overemphasize everything um Mm -hmm. bad and good uh and we saw i mean i think that we made fun of a couple of people um, who, you know, basically (laughs) talked about the Jokers being the, uh, who was there? There was someone who said, it's just like, there will be a before Joker and there will be cinema after Joker. (laughs) And even then I was just like, oh my God. I mean, this is funny. There is no way that like, I know I haven't even (laughs) seen the film. There is no way that, that this film is like going to change my life. I'm sorry. It's just not going to. Uh, right. it, it's like, I cannot imagine a world in which this that this is going to be true, right? Uh,
0: maybe one <laughs> of them. But
1: but, uh, you know, you automatically distrust that. Kind I mean, of it did change
0: my life, but not for the reasons they thought it would. <laughs>
1: meanwhile i have to say you know like birds of prey which definitely has had more of an effect on me than joker has oh uh, yeah for sure. you know when when it was first announced when it was first coming out i was just like eh, okay you know it looks fun i like margot robbie it's like a good cast i'm like okay well, fine whatever and then as it got closer and closer i was like oh i'm really excited about this oh my god i'm so excited about this and then i saw i was like yes <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah and by the way i wasn't just making a flippant comment like joker and that experience of that movie really did change some things for me and it's funny because it didn't make me more shy about sharing my opinion it made me more like fuck you i'm gonna say what i think i'm gonna really tell you what i think about whatever i feel like talking about Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and i feel like that was a valuable experience for me yeah it really sucked having to deal with stupid comments and still having to deal with stupid comments from people but I think that for me getting getting that experience because I was the one that wrote the review for Citizen Dame and then those dudes were trolling female names Mm -hmm. on Rotten Tomatoes just to um, just to give us shit. And it was it was really funny because, you know previously if i'd gotten negative comments on a review i started to think like oh man are they right this one it was just like so obvious that they were ridiculous and wrong and stupid that it just really made it easier for me to just be like okay i don't when i'm writing something about a film i don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks but what i think and that's okay and that's not just allowed but it's how it should be
1: i think that that's a good perspective to take away from that honestly yeah i think i also think that it's not an unusual one that i a lot more women are going like oh you're just full of shit okay so i don't need to listen to <laughs> yeah. you boy like you go away now you go you go you're mm-hmm. stupid i'm much smarter than you
0: yep <laughs> and also birds of prey is a much better movie
1: <laughs> it is it is i you know in case anyone who's listening to us did not already catch that uh so so i think that that there's more stuff that we could talk about obviously film criticism and film theory is a a big topic uh but we are also next week i think we are going to settle down and talk specifically about feminist film criticism and feminist Mm -hmm. film theory so in order to prepare for that uh if you would like to and it's also going to be in the notes on um on the on podbean and uh on our patreon and everything uh you know take a moment it's not very long and read laura mulvey's uh visual pleasure and narrative cinema it's a short essay um if you can also get a hold of it and i haven't actually been able to find the essay but um she wrote kind of a a rebuttal to her own perspective or, or a a more complex view of her own perspective uh, later later on and the uh, many years later i think it was i think she actually didn't write it until like the 80s or 90s um so it's just her short essay about there's been very influential in feminist film criticism about um the male gaze and what the male gaze is and why it's important and and the way that film uh works to kind of reinforce it it's not you know again as we were saying about theories this is not something that should be taken as the only choice right the only way to look at film the only way to understand it but it is important to kind of get what we're talking about when we talk about the male gaze and how present it truly is in a lot of cinema and and it, it is a way to look at film and particularly in the way that women are looked at and the way that women are consumed so i really recommend people if you get a chance to read that i'm also going to post uh, a link to barbara creed's the monstrous feminine just because it's a fantastic book it is a book so like you know read a little bit of it or something like that but it's really interesting and specifically addresses um uh women in horror films and the mm-hmm. understanding and, and feminist film criticism of horror So those are two things that, you know, might help to sort of put into perspective some of the stuff that we're going to talk about next week. Next week, I think we're also going to answer, uh, we have another question here, but I think that it fits better into the feminist film criticism, so Jeremy, we are going to get to your question, I promise. It's just going to be next week. Uh, And finally, I think that we wanted to announce a contest! Yes! (laughs) A very exciting contest. So... What we want people to do, and if you're on Twitter Awesome, or on Facebook, or on uh, email, or, you know, get get it to us in some way, send us an email, a comment, or a DM with your most surprising cinematic blind spot. Uh, And you'll be entered to win three months of Criterion Channel on us. Yes, you will get three whole months of Criterion Channel, so there's no reason not to enter. Like, honestly, this is just cool uh you get access to a whole bunch of really interesting films many of which you have definitely not seen because i definitely haven't seen them and no one has seen all of them Uh, and just put in the subject line criterion if you send us an email if you send us a dm just say like this is for the criterion contest uh and and you'll be entered to win and we will announce that uh we will announce the winner in a couple of weeks and we'll also reiterate this a couple of times uh on the podcast so please do that it'll be a lot of fun and you get to win some stuff so that'll be cool
0: exactly and what's great is if you haven't gotten to experience the criterion channel yet i mean they are still doing a 14 day free trial so you should check that out but um this gives you the opportunity to really dig in because when they put films on there they leave them for at least 90 days most in most cases so you get time to really dig in and see some of their great collections but this is also great because if you already subscribe to the criterion channel i mean three free months we could all use a little extra you know cash right now so there you go this everybody can benefit
1: say exactly so please get in touch with us and and enter and we will keep on reiterating this a couple of times to make certain everybody who wants to enter gets a chance so i think that that is going to close us out uh as per usual i think we're just watching stuff This week? Is there anything you're really excited about, Karen?
0: Uh, So, (laughs) this week I finally started watching The Handmaid's Tale. Oh god. I don't know that I would say I'm excited about it, but it's definitely been an interesting week.
1: (laughs) My heavens. Yeah, Yeah, I'm not doing that right now. I, well, no. to flush my
0: brain at the end of the day, then I watch, I'm also re-watching the Marvel movies just because they're really fun. And yeah, I could dive deep into those, but I won't. Um, but I, I enjoy them. I think that they're a lot of fun to just kind of relax at the end of a crazy day. So I've been doing that too.
1: Sounds, that sounds good. Yeah, I've just been, well, I've been watching a whole bunch of Tribeca films. I'm going to be watching some more, uh, which will also be reviewed on the website so you know everybody watch out Yay. for those because there's some uh, yet again there's some good films coming out of tribeca this year uh even though we're it's all at home right now
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah um you no know, this is just weird times
1: it's very weird times uh so i think that is going to wrap us up as always we want to thank our patrons who are so awesome and so lovely and you kind and wonderful people who are continue to contribute some money to us to keep us going um so thank you to heather adriana cricket table podcast michael james katie Cariata, mason matthew Monty, nanina Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. Uh, if you do want to contribute to our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash citizen You can contribute as little as a dollar or I think as much as $10, something like that. Uh, and if you contribute over a dollar you you get access to a whole bunch of really fun stuff and uh, and you get to support us and keep us going keep us hosted and everything if you want to get in touch with us uh, there are a number of different ways we are on twitter and instagram at citizen dame pod we're on facebook facebook.com slash citizen dame you can email us citizen Dame pod at gmail.com uh, If you want to enter the contest and you're not on Twitter or uh, any of the social medias go like send an email to that and we will get it I promise. Um, that's citizendamepod at gmail.com. We also of course have our website where all the reviews are going up and some editorials and some fun stuff. That's citizendamepod.com. We still have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizendame. And we do have a ko-fi if you just want to send us some bucks and um and give us a little bit of support but don't want to become a patron. That's co-fi.com slash citizendame. And of course, you could get in touch with us personally. Um, I am at LH Business. Karen, where are
0: you? I am at Karen M. Peterson.
1: Alrighty, and we will see you guys next week when we will talk about feminist film criticism as if we don't do that enough already. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Woohoo. Bye. I am a movie critic by trade, and until recently, I got paid to tell you people which movies merely stink and which ones you shouldn't screen near an open flame. Well, I'm putting the burden of lousy movies back on you. It's very simple. If you stop going to bad movies, they'll stop making bad movies.
1: Uh Uh-oh. The jig is up.